I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upsound. everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big news story each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kenny, an urban planner with Gould Evans out of Kansas City. And today I'm once again joined by my friend, Rachel Quedno, who is the program director at Strong Towns. Nice to have you today. Yeah, good to be here again. So the article that we will be discussing today was published in Reason, written by Christian Britschke, entitled, Boulder Refuses to Lift the Cap on Unrelated People Living Together, Housing Advocates Plan to Sue the City. So Boulder, Colorado, as many people probably know, is a lovely town north of Denver that is kind of a recipe for disaster when it comes to housing affordability. The location, the mountains, weather, among other things, make this town an incredibly competitive market for wealthy homeowners and vacationers. And the town is also a popular college town. So Boulder has been very strict about enabling new development that might ease some of the pressure in the housing market for the purpose of preserving natural areas, the views, the historic buildings over the years. Uh, Because of the cost, because the cost of housing is so high in Boulder, many houses are being homed by groups of unrelated people living together, especially when it comes to students. So the Bedrooms Are for People Coalition is a group of housing advocates pressing the city council to allow an initiative on the November ballot that could reform limits on unrelated people living together. If voters approved, the initiative would amend the city's charter to allow one person per bedroom plus an additional person. Although activists say that they were advised by municipal employees that the end of August deadline would be the date. They have now been told by the city attorney that their deadline was actually back in June, and the council has told them that they now need double the number of signatures that they were told originally in order to qualify for the ballot. So this is expecting to result in litigation, as the Bedrooms Are for People campaign have argued the city's failure to abide by their original guidance is not only unfair, but illegal. I'm not an expert on Boulder, but it sounds like they've been sort of suppressing the market for so long that these kinds of issues around co-housing are now boiling up to the top of the community's political discourse in a way that is really inevitable. Anyone familiar with Boulder knows that, you know, cohabitating is fairly common because the rent is just so incredibly expensive. Strongtowns posted an article on their Facebook feed recently, and you told me how you were surprised at how much discussion this topic inspired. I read through some of the comments on that thread, and someone made the argument that I tend to agree with calling for removing barriers to natural growth in Boulder and other kind of highly expensive communities, and added the example of doing that through accessory dwelling units. I think that this coalesces well with the idea of enabling development intensity to the next increment when pressure is occurring. So what this ballot initiative does is it it legitimizes something that's already happening by potentially making cohabitating legal through a vote of the people. 
When it comes to zoning changes, I typically don't think voting on these types of changes is the healthiest path forward, but it might be an exception for Boulder. I'm not sure. (laughs) Regardless, this seems to be another housing predicament that's inevitable when growth is suppressed in this way. Well, I'm curious why you have that perspective about ballot initiatives like not being the best way to get things done. I don't have like a strong feeling either way. I'm just curious about your opinion. So typically when I think about zoning, I like to think about the connection between planning and zoning. And I prefer that when we're talking about changing regulations, that cities have a strong comprehensive plan that gives specific policies regarding what is important to that city. And then that would advise on how to go about changing specific code language. It's typically not the best time to be tackling really challenging and difficult discussions when you're jumping into a zoning code because writing ordinance language is very complicated and and it relates to lots of different things and there's lots of unintended consequences. So it's better to have kind of broader policy understanding and having those conversations up front and not doing it later on. And then especially, you know, just putting everything out to a vote can also complicate things. So I think it's kind of one of those things where the the discussion wasn't had or it, there, there wasn't a clear understanding of how to move forward or how uh, neighborhoods should be used or housing should be used. And it's in putting things out to a vote every time a tough discussion comes up is typically not a healthy way to go about politics in a city. Yeah, that's a good point. Okay, that, that helps me think about this better. I was really surprised when this story generated a lot of heated discussion on the Strong Towns Facebook page. I actually thought it was going to be kind of like a boring thing to publish, but I thought it was an important conversation. And then turns out a lot of people feel really strongly. So like, I think there were kind of some common threads were people, I would say, expressing stereotypes about renters and saying like, oh yeah, this is just going to become a party house and there's going to be a lot of noise and trash and this doesn't support neighborhoods where families can live and people can, you know, be homeowners and build wealth and things like that. And then other people argued, oh, like this is only just to help like some rich college students, you know, live in their their temporary housing during their college years. And then this doesn't help like the real people of Boulder. But other people jumped in and said like, well, actually, you know, it's not just college students are you know, would make the choice to live with a roommate, plenty of young people, plenty of, you know, just single people or folks that don't have a lot of money for for whatever reason, you might want to live with a roommate, especially in a really expensive city. So it brought me back to actually my college town, Walla Walla, Washington. I distinctly remember our our university had, you know, some sororities and frats and For some reason, this outdated law existed in the city, which meant that the frats could have like a frat house and, you know, they all had like, you know, these big old mansions where a bunch of dudes lived together. But the sororities had to be in dorms because there was this old law, at least is what I heard, that said, you know, more than a small amount of women could not live together because uh, that would probably mean it was a whorehouse. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I think we have that law too. 
<laughs> yeah, these like really weird occupancy laws, which, okay, like we can give the benefit of the doubt, I guess, that there were some good intentions, but the result is just to prevent people from living in housing that they would choose to live in and that they can afford to live in. So yeah, I, I think these sorts of restrictions are just pretty pointless. They don't accomplish a lot other than to prevent people from having affordable housing. Yeah. Well, I'll admit that I, I've lived in a dining room for a portion of my, you know, late 18, 19 year old, you know, early 20s. So it is kind of a common occurrence when you are in college that you are going to live in kind of weird arrangements. And to me, it was okay. I kind of felt like a cockroach. I could just kind of live wherever and and my standards were pretty low. And so it wasn't really that big of a deal at the time. In, in the case of Boulder, the renters versus owners discussion is really interesting because I think what happens when property values increase very significantly over a short period of time with large segments of the population being renters and then much more wealth being that of the homeowners is you see the, you know, what people perceive as what's good for them intensified. And what I mean by that is, you know, existing homeowners, they benefit because they become wealthier through equity or resale value of the home that they own or have a mortgage on. And if you can afford to pay the rising taxes on your property, then it's in the best interest for you to keep that value going up and up and up. For renters, it only becomes more difficult not only to become a homeowner, but also to just be a renter. And that means that you might have to bring in another tenant on your lease to live on the couch or in the basement or wherever to cover the extra expense that keeps rising. So it could also lead to landlords treating houses as co-housing facilities and developing contracts in a way that, you know, is by the room. So renting it out by the room. When natural growth is suppressed, we are seeing that intensification between what is perceived to be in the best interest of homeowners and the best interest of renters. Is And this is really just the manifestation of individuals responding to this market distortion in ways that are logical to them. I think many communities struggle to really define the kind of growth that they need and to support it despite you know, political discussions, controversy, opposition. There's a challenging reality that we must reckon with around whether or not we should be defensive about the market pressures or you know, being pr- more proactive about you know, what's going on and being assertive about elephants in the room and difficult discussions and addressing people's perceptions and biases and really being more thoughtful and courageous about defining and upholding the most rational path forward. That's very difficult for cities to do because politics really do conflict with our needs to address housing issues in a nuanced and long-term way. And, you know, of course, I'm, I'm not an expert on Boulder, but it does seem that there's just not enough housing for all the people who want to be there, which is a little bit of a concern. But there are also maybe questions about if the city can even take on the capacity that or the demand that's there. I don't know what their infrastructure is like, but I do know the region you know, is challenged with water availability. And so the population may not be able to keep going up and up and up. It's kind of tough. I I don't know how Boulder gets out of this. 
Yeah. And now we're getting into like big questions about what, you know, the outlook looks like for bigger cities in this current economic climate and just like the housing market bubble in so many big cities. I'm in Cambridge, Massachusetts, aka like right next to Boston. And so I'm familiar with the like living in a really expensive city, especially as, you know, when we're looking at universities, when so many universities are going to be online this year, like are all those college students going to be showing up in Boulder to live there? I don't know. That's a really good question. I'm not sure if they're all going to be going back there, but eventually, hopefully this pandemic will be over. So in a long-term sense, you know, does the pandemic actually impact Boulder? I don't know. I think it depends on what the long-term outcomes of all of this are. I think, you know, going back to who gets to habitate houses and, you know, do they have to be a family? From a broader sense, there's an interesting distinction between converting random spaces into bedrooms versus utilizing bedrooms and houses that don't market, I guess, to modern families. That applies to this discussion more generally than just Boulder. So when I began first working professionally and getting trained to understand zoning codes, this was something that I found really interesting because I may or may not have unknowingly broken this rule like several times. A lot of what it boils down to is what the definition of a family is, which is written into municipal codes and depends on where you live. The definition of family can change quite a bit. And Boulder does seem to have a pretty strict definition of family by limiting it to people who are are actually related or in a domestic partnership, which is, I think, a mundane way of describing people who are dating. Family size in the United States, however, has shrunken pretty substantially over the years. And so, you know, when you look at a place like Kansas City, there's a large portion of the housing stock that are not necessarily built to be marketed to modern families, although sometimes families do live in those houses, especially around college campuses. You do have this situation where you have these large five-bedroom houses, maybe with one or two bathrooms, where you have a lot of college students living in them. And, you know, like I said, I, I lived in a dining room for a little while. And these are just kind of areas that are not necessarily The target audience isn't always going to be families. Sometimes these neighborhoods have evolved over time to be desirable places for college students to live. And I guess the point I'm trying to set up is that not all houses are appealing to all markets. And when you have older houses with lots of rooms close to a university, it seems ridiculous to try to micromanage who gets to live there just because you have maybe bias about what a single family house gets to get used as. If there's five rooms in a house and you have five people living there, does it really matter whether or not they're they're related? Does it matter to enough of us to spend tax dollars micromanaging the living situation out of existence? That was kind of my question, just starting out when I was learning about zoning. Uh, you know, in, in the case of Boulder, I don't know that this plays a huge role as it would in more typical cities just because Boulder is one of those extreme cases where buyers can't necessarily afford to be as particular about the house's layout or design or surroundings. I think that this can confuse the expectation about what you are going to get 
with various different neighborhoods. In, in my city, for example, if you are a single family buying a single family house, you have some expectation depending on where you choose to live about whether or not you are going to have kind of cohabitating in surrounding houses. And if that's a deal breaker for you, there's plenty of neighborhoods where that situation is more rare. Great points about like the need for housing to be able to adapt to changing markets. Like I don't know what, you know, big houses in Boulder were primarily used for a hundred years ago or something, but yeah, they need to be ready for whatever the current um, folks who live there need most. There's one thing that just like always bugs me about these sorts of conversations about like, especially around housing and development. I think there's this common misconception that comes up. Um, It came up certainly in the recent conversation that was kind of floating around in the previous weeks about abolishing single family zoning in the suburbs and like Biden's proposal to do that, um, whatever that actually looked like. Like some people actually think that means like, it, it seems like people envision that means, okay, we're, you're like coming in to just like destroy my neighborhood and like you're going to bulldoze my house and my house is going to be converted into like a 10 story apartment. And like this literally, these sorts of like raising, lifting restrictions just means there's more permission to do more things at some point in the future if someone would like to do it. It doesn't mean anything for your house. You can keep living in your house. But you could rent out a room in your house if you need to make some extra money. Or, you know, if you're living in a space with some um, roommates and then you get married, uh, your spouse can move in with you. And that's still like allowed to happen. Also, families can choose to live in a house together. Um, My colleague, John, is in that, that exact situation. He and his wife and his two daughters live in a house with a couple of other families and they all like share duties and the cost of living and it's this beautiful community all those things become possible and I don't think any of those things are like going to ruin your neighborhood Um, (laughs) like if you're concerned about the noise or trash or whatever that that you envision might come from more people being there then like create ways to handle those specific issues if they are in fact issues but like just letting some more people live in a house I don't know it's it's a lot. <laughs> so you touched on a few things. And the first is, you know, when people bring housing discussions, discussions that are, you know, real professionals are having seriously nuanced discussions around single family zoning, housing, and, and all kinds of things that then get brought up to the federal level and it becomes political. Personally, I can't think of anything that makes me more frustrated than that because it kind of blows up the whole conversation, especially in an election year. So I I didn't read his proposal, but it just very much frustrates me that that becomes, you know, all of a sudden now everybody has bias about that discussion and it's been framed in a way where, you know, people aren't perceiving it of as, oh, as a, you know, property owner, now I have the ability to do more than just one thing and seeing it as, you know, you're making things more flexible for people. First of all, I just would like to say that is incredibly frustrating. It's interesting to think about grappling with the fact that how a neighborhood is used might change over time. A neighborhood may have originally been built for, you know, families in the 1800s that had 10 kids. 
and that could change over time. You know, it the use of housing stock and in a neighborhood might change, and that's something that I think a lot of people feel deeply uncomfortable with. Unfortunately, there are some, you know, legitimate or illegitimate. I think there are concerns that people tend to have about parking or overcrowding. If you have a neighborhood and you have a house with five bedrooms, the neighborhood probably wasn't originally designed with the idea that every bedroom that had a person in it would also bring their their personal car with them. And that's a design issue. And it's also a parking management issue. So depending on where they were built, they may have been designed to assume one car per house. And if it's a four bedroom, that just, you know, increases it by four times. So that's a parking management issue with unrelated people living all together in one place. I was looking at an aerial boulder actually, and I noticed that the alleys are being utilized in a way that kind of repurposes space as like small parking lots for storing cars. So it does sound like there's I don't know if it's planned or if it's just the property owners are trying to get parking off the street. So that's interesting, but that does seem like more of a parking management issue. And people also have concerns about renters when it comes to long-term maintenance of a property. And that seems also something that is more of a code enforcement issue than a zoning issue as well. So I do think that there are concerns that people have that maybe could be addressed through other other methods than just kind of restricting things. Uh, but we tend to go to zoning as, you know, we'll just restrict it and we won't do it. We won't allow it. But then when people break the rule and they just do it anyway, then you have this whole issue on your hands and, and it becomes a big problem. So it's good to be proactive and, and look at what people's concerns are and try to address them in the ways that exist. Just to round out this conversation, I just want to give a shout out. I don't know very much about this bedrooms are for people campaign in Boulder that is really like raising the charge about this issue. But like looking at their website and their stuff, I really appreciate the kind of nonpartisan nature of the arguments that they're making. I think a lot of housing issues cross political lines, confuse political assumptions. It's good to like keep that in mind that um, just because you agree or disagree with Biden, Trump, anybody else, local issues, especially around housing, are complex and like we can all try to sort through them and figure them out and it doesn't have to cut across uh, weird partisan lines. Yes. I'm going to end there because I think that that is the most important point. <laughs> That that we don't make housing a partisan issue because it affects real people and um, we can, I know we can all be rational about these discussions. I I believe I believe in people, so let's try to be rational about it. <laughs> yeah, and empathetic because I think most of us in our lives are going to live in a variety of housing situations, going from you know being a kid in your family house and then being a young adult, college, whatever being married, having kids, like all of these things bring different housing needs. So I hope that there's ways to find empathy for people at different phases of their life when they have different housing needs. Absolutely. Aging in place. It's what we all, you know, should we should strive for all of our communities to be able to facilitate that. 
as a baseline. And that's something that every political party, whatever, underneath the sun could definitely, uh, hopefully, eventually get on board with that idea. (laughs) But before we end this episode, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we get to share anything that's been captivating our time, anything we've been listening to or reading, watching. Rachel, what have you been up to these days? I have a couple of things. First of all, hot off the presses, literally like less than 24 hours ago, I became very addicted to a show called Dark, which is on Netflix. It's like this German time travel, psychological, slightly creepy show that is very fascinating. Also, because at Strong Towns, we are talking about food issues this week, shout out to a podcast that has been going on for a long time, but I just recently started listening to called The Splendid Table. They talk about all sorts of different aspects of food systems, farming, restaurants, um, home cooks, people doing all sorts of cooking all over the world, and it's super fascinating. So uh, Splendid Table, I'm a fan of that. Rachel, you took my down zone. Oh. (laughs) What was your? I've also been watching Dark. Ooh, okay. We should talk <laughs> yes. about it offline. Yeah, no spoilers, we should. Though. I know. No, I think I'm only like three episodes in, and I'm very confused. And I should have made a chart that. I know. I've already Wikipedia multiple times. Have you? That's a good idea. I if anybody has not watched the show yet, I would recommend that you get out a scrap of paper when starting and. Write down names, take notes, who's related to who and why, what year are they in. It's very confusing, <laughs> but it's a very, very good show. It's very well done. Yeah, I'm enjoying it. Before we close, let me also put in a little plug for our podcast survey, strongtowns.org survey. If you visit that page, it's a pretty short, it should only take you a few minutes, and it'll be super helpful as we plan the future of this and our other Strong Towns podcasts, try to give you the content that you're interested in um, and just figure out what's next. So appreciate everyone who's already filled that out too. Yes, fill out the survey. One more thing that I might add that's food related is that I've been experimenting with food preservation and I have just successfully pickled my first batch of onions and I'm also going to pickle some garlic and some other things. We're getting a bunch of tomatoes in our garden, and I don't know that I can preserve those, but maybe. So, Are you doing like the whole canning water bath thing? No, I have not heard about that. I have some jars and various ingredients that the okay, internet Okay, you're like putting them in the fridge, not like doing the elaborate like seal them in the boiling water whole thing. No, I did bo- – they're in the fridge, but I did boil the mixture before putting it in the jar. Gotcha. Cool. Yeah, I've not done much canning myself, but I'm jealous of all the people that do that and know how to do it. You know, we have a great farmer's market nearby, and they have great prices on food. Um, sometimes they are – they're closer to their expiration date, though, for the really good deals. And so I like to bring it all home and get it frozen. Or And so I, I've been trying to find different ways to preserve food so that we just kind of can can get 
food for a good price and also keep it around longer. Yeah, that's awesome. Good life yeah. skill. Yeah, good life skill. Well, thank you so much, Rachel, for joining me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Let me show you what I'm about to do.